Listener Production. So, was it murder or a genetic mutation? On today's briefing, will the woman dubbed Australia's worst female serial killer be released from prison after 20 years behind bars? A second inquiry has just examined evidence that could prove Kathleen Folbig did not murder her four children, showing instead that they died from rare genetic causes. Well, my letters prove that over that 20 years, she's not a savant. She's telling the truth and the information she's given me over the years just in conversation is consistent with everything she said on the stand in 2019. So that is Kathleen Folbig's childhood friend, Tracy Chapman, who you'll hear from in today's briefing. She speaks to her every day on the phone and the letters the two shared were also key evidence in the inquiry that's just happened. So will Kathleen Folbig be released? We interview her best friend, Tracy Chapman. That's all in the second half of this episode. First, here are the big news stories of the day with Antoinette Latouf. It's Wednesday, the 1st of March. The man accused of killing Queensland woman Toya Cordingly in 2018 will return to Australia today following a successful extradition process. Rajinder Singh is an Australian citizen of Indian origin and he flew to India two days after Cordingly's body was found on a beach near Cairns. Then after an investigation and a million dollar reward, he was tracked down in rural India and finally he's been extradited. Um, Seven officers in India escorted him from prison to meet Queensland police at the airport gate. Yeah, and look, and this is a pretty speedy um, extradition process, which can usually take years and years, particularly because, like, India has super congested courts. Um, but Singh has um, he's decided not to contest his extradition to Australia, which meant it moved pretty quickly. And I'm sure this investigation and the next step is welcome news for Toya's family. Just late last year, um, they marked the fourth year anniversary of her death, and they had a had a service at the memorial site. Um, built by her loved ones on that beach in Wangeti. So bad news if you have an enormous amount in superannuation because the federal government has announced they'll scale back tax concessions for anyone with, wait for it, more than $3 million in super. 99.5% of people with superannuation are unaffected by this reform. Uh, Under 80,000 people will be impacted by this. So at the moment, everyone, you, me, and these 80,000 people only pay 15% tax on super earnings. And for the bigger accounts, that will go up to 30%, which will save the budget around $2 billion a year. Yeah, it's an interesting one. The opposition are coming out hard saying this is a broken election promise because Labor said there'd be no changes to super during the election campaign. And technically, uh, the coalition are right there. But the changes are pretty modest and they won't kick in until 2025. So if you are really fired up about this and you're really rich, um, then you can vote them out in 2024. But this will make sense to a lot of people. A slight wind back on concessions for people who have huge amounts of money in super. I even think some of those people, that 0.5% of Australians will think, oh, fair enough, we'll just invest the money elsewhere. 
Yeah, absolutely. And for, and, you know, for the rest of us plebs with less than $3 million in super, um, the tax office has released new data that shows that there's about $2.1 billion, um, in unclaimed super, um, because around a quarter of Aussies hold more than two super accounts and often people just forget, um, and they lose their super. So uh, it's probably worth, now that we're having a chat about super, checking that out and rolling it all into one account. And the Royal Commission into robo-debt has heard one of the ministers responsible chose to double down even after being told the program was illegal. So the former head of human services said this is what she was told by Stuart Robert after she told him the robo-debt program was unlawful. Well, Secretary, legal advice is just advice. It was in, I think that is a rendition of his tone. So that's Renee Leon there. So she claimed he chose to double down despite the advice from the Solicitor General that the program was illegal. So she actually stopped the program herself before a government uh, decision to do that. Eventually, this all ended up in the federal court. Um, A class action went all the way to the federal court and uh, the justice ruled that it was illegal and it was a massive failure of public administration. So... That ended up in a $1.7 billion settlement if only Stuart Robert had listened to the advice in the first place. And what she also detailed was this this culture where anything that was bad or incriminating, any bad news, was kept out of emails so that wasn't a, a paper mm. trail um, and that, you know, if any public servants um, disagreed with ministers, they were punished. So it's, it's, you know, obviously a super bad look, but of course let's not forget that the 400,000 people who were impacted by this as well. Well, that public servant did leave a paper trail because she took detailed notes of her interactions. Mm. Um, And the tone. I love it. I love her rendition of the tone. Mm. All right, Antoinette, we'll catch you again soon. Katrina's about to join me as we interview the best friend of Kathleen Folbig. So if Kathleen Folbig is released from prison after 20 years, this is just going to be one of the most mind-blowing crime stories ever, don't you think, Katrina? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's probably many people who would have at least heard of Lindy Chamberlain and, you know, that that infamous Dingo Stole My Baby line and when she was found innocent of that particular crime, it blew people's minds. But this is an instance where Kathleen Folbig has been found guilty of not just one of her baby's deaths, but four of them. And to be in prison for 20 years Mm. and potentially be innocent, it is unbelievably mind-blowing, as you say. Yeah, well, she's consistently argued that they all died of natural causes. And now new genetic research has revealed that Folbig and two of her daughters shared a rare genetic variant called CALM2 that can lead to irregular heartbeats, which may explain their deaths. And there's also new scientific evidence about her two boys. So this new evidence was cited in an open letter signed by 90 of the world's leading genetic scientists. They say Folbig should be released from jail. That's led to a second inquiry into her case, which after two weeks has just finished hearing evidence. So one of the people there was Tracy Chapman and she is Kathleen's best friend. She watched the whole inquiry in Sydney and a key piece of evidence in the inquiry along with the scientific discoveries were actually the letters that Tracy and Kathleen Folbig had been sharing during her 20 years in prison. 
um, as you're about to hear, their friendship goes way back. Tracy, thank you so much for joining us. Just tell us how far that friendship goes back. Oh, we've been friends since we were, you know, five or six. So unfortunately, that's over 50 years now. (laughs) Wow. So (laughs) she had a very tough childhood, didn't she? Her father murdered her mother and then she was sent into a home. Yeah, there's a complicated backstory on that one. But yes, essentially, that's what happened, sadly, around 18 months, which she's far too young to remember that trauma, thank goodness. But she has attachment issues related to that. You guys have written a lot of letters back and forth, um, and I understand you, you've made lots of phone calls and, and you visit her in jail as well. But your letters in particular were given to this latest inquiry to examine. How many letters were there and, and over how long? Oh, I've got nearly 13 kilos of letters, wow. probably more now. Um, so that I, I gave up uh, all of the ones that I had at the time. She's written a few cents, but Kath's diaries weren't a reflection of mm. what they were saying she was in for. So it was very clear to me over the time from 2003 onwards when she was writing to me, when I asked really tough questions because, you know, back then I couldn't source the internet to get my information. I, I did ask tough questions and I, the answers I got back kind of blew me away. And that's been consistent for well over 20 years. So how important were those diaries in the decision to convict her in 2003? And and what do you think your letters reveal about the true meaning of those diaries? I suppose in 2003, they used those diaries. You know, you've got to remember that Kath was um, convicted of killing those children in the absence of any evidence of smothering. So then they used the diaries to double down on a conviction, saying they were the thoughts of a woman that was, um, you know, clearly having issues and then smothered those children in in fits of rage. Now, my letters prove that, A, she's been consistent and there was this incredible moment back in 2019 when they were going on that she's perhaps some sort of savant (laughs) and, and, you know, Gal Finesse, I remember an exchange with Kath in, in the last week of the inquiry saying, you know, you've had 20 years to think about this. Well, my letters prove that over that 20 years, she's not a savant. She's telling the truth. And the information she's given me over the years just in conversation is consistent with everything she said on the stand in 2019. So to me, it's nothing to see here. And it's quite disgraceful, really. To me, I've often thought about what if she is innocent, right? Like that's a mum who's lost four of her babies, just horrendous. And then to be accused and convicted to spend 20 years in jail. You talk to her a lot. How does she hold out hope and keep the faith? Well, we always just say it's the truth that keeps us alive because it is. I mean, there's been so many challenging moments and I I think by far the worst was that final week of the 2019 inquiry when they didn't have mental health professionals in the room and something broke in both of us. We've both had trauma since that time because it was so disgraceful. And, you know, being in prison for all this time, it's the resilience of the person. She's had to draw deep strength. And I guess I have in a way too as her advocate on the outside, but also her friend, because there's been many sad, dark moments. You know, we sometimes sort of blackly say at least she disassociates because that's the only way she can cope, as she always has when she was young. So, it's very, very difficult. Mm. So your letters were an important um, piece of evidence in this latest inquiry. Um, the other really important consideration is the new genetic evidence. 
that demonstrates how two of her daughters may have shared, along with Kathleen, a genetic condition which can create cardiac arrhythmias, which may have explained the two deaths of the daughters. How much of that evidence and the science around it was was new and how much of it was already examined in the last inquiry in 2018? In 2018, 2019, um, we, we didn't have a lot of that evidence. A lot of it's actually evolved from earlier than then, obviously, but it's continued to evolve because some of the scientists, like Professor Schwartz, who's the Carmodulin expert globally, has just, his database, I think, started off with 70 survivors. Um, that They're still trying to work out why these people are alive when it's such a lethal gene. But it's gone from, I think, 70-odd people to over 130. Um, so we're still finding out a lot about it. It's continuously evolving, and that's my frustration with the law. It, it sort of wants a definitive answer now, and we can't wait. But I think that's the important elements here. The, the science and the law have to come together or we're not going to have a fair and just system. It sounds like you're disappointed that the 2018 inquiry didn't consider more of this scientific evidence or it wasn't available. What about the inquiry you've just witnessed? Did you feel that that new scientific evidence around these dangerous genes was properly heard and and do you think it shifted the needle on this whole question about Kathleen Folbig's innocence? Well, that's a really good question because we focused on the calm mutation in the girls, but there was also some really other important moments like they've just discovered a REM2 gene that's in all four children that can't possibly come from the mother. It's in obviously the father, but the father has been able to refuse genetic testing. We also know the boys have bassoon mutations. So that mutation is important because it's actually linked with epilepsy. And we know Patrick on his death certificate, you know, died of complications from epilepsy. And I think that's another important element here. You know, there was all the death certificates except Laura had a valid cause of death. And and so everything sort of gets jumbled up. It's very frustrating because they focus on calm to there's other questions of foot here that are still evolving and they want a definitive answer and I get that because we've got to get Kath out of prison as far as I'm concerned that's my job but on top of that things are still evolving and the inquiry has to have an end date. And what do you think actually happened? Were you in touch with her during those 10 years when these deaths actually occurred? Because I think that's it's an important thing to note that this happened over the course of 10 years. Her first boy died after 19 days, but each child lived a little bit longer. The, the last daughter who died was alive for 18 months. So what was going on in those intervening years? Because all the legal action happened after this, and eventually that, that conviction was in 2003, but there were many years in between. So what was going on? Well, that's the thing. Nothing remarkable was going on. I mean, we've just had presented over 530 hours of, of recordings of mundaneness, I would say, in that last couple of days um, of this inquiry. And it was remarkably normal. There is marital issues there. There's, you know, other issues with kids' health. And that's the important thing to remember. None of these kids were actually healthy. That's something that most people don't seem to understand. You know, um, there was laryngeal myelasia with and with Caleb. I was around then. He was mm. always sort of bringing up, he was, he was having so much trouble breathing when he was feeding. I then moved to Sydney, but my parents saw with the children all the time, you know, so those kids were well presented. 
they were well loved, they were well looked after. There was never any signs of explosive rage. There was nothing. But everything else gets lost in translation because there's so much else with this, you know. So we forget that had there been issues, they would have been flagged with social welfare. She was going to doctors often. Nothing was flagged. So there's many things that are just normal. And then these 500 hours of tapes, well, they took a few out that they said, you know, very cleverly last week, they said that there was a noise of her opening a cupboard and <laughs> she was um, swearing under her breath that she should have put something there. Very clever of the DPP to say, what do you think of that to the mental health experts implying she was lying? But there is no evidence. She was talking about a diary. They would, that was a day after the diaries were were taken in by police. And if you go back to Journaling 101, keep them, dispose of them, do whatever you want with them. There is no issue here because once you've done a brain dump, that's the end of it. So, you know, to me, she had always had issues talking to her husband, Mm. which is very sad, but that's what the diaries were for. And these are the key things that get lost in translation with this case. There's a very normal backstory to this. And as I've always said, there was no evidence back in 2003 to convict her. All she wants is an honourable epitaph for her children. All she wants is to live a normal life like her ex-husband has been able to do, even though she recognises they both lost children. You know, she's been vilified in the most heinous way. And I'm not sure she can clam, clam her back from that societally because we are so judgmental and we only take sound bites of information. But the broader picture, the broader picture is much, much bigger and it's not of the person that they say is a media monster. She's nothing like that. She's a good, kind person. That was Tracy Chapman, the best friend of Kathleen Folby, convicted of killing her four children between the years of 1989 and 1999. So, Tom, closing submissions will happen in April. We will definitely keep you guys updated Mm. when there's a result. I was looking at what could happen next. Pretty much if the former New South Wales Chief Justice who's been presiding over this inquiry determines that there is reasonable doubt over Folbig's guilt, he could then refer the case to the Court of Criminal Appeal, which will decide if her convictions will be quashed. So I guess we've still got a while to go Mm. before this plays out. You know, the wheels of justice do turn very slowly, uh, but still a few hurdles to get over. Yeah, it's not like she's going to walk out of jail tomorrow. But, yeah, those wheels of justice may turn in her favour. Listener.